podcast highlighting innovators and leaders across the state of Iowa. It's hosted by the Technology Association of Iowa, an organization that serves as the uniting force for Iowa's technology community. Visit technologyiowa.org to learn more about how to get involved. My name is Beth Trejo, and I'll be your host for today's show. Today's guest is Bernie Crump with Mobile M2M, and we're excited to learn a little bit more about Bernie today and um, just get to know him. So, Bernie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. It's nice to meet you. Well, first of all, let's just start off with a brief introduction. Tell us about yourself and share a little bit about your background and Mobile M2M. Sure. Um, I've been an Iowan for most of my adult life. I came here after a company called Norand Corporation interviewed at my campus and hired me. I came to Iowa, found an Iowa girl and married her and have lived a bunch of different places over the years. But we always end up returning to Iowa uh, where it's close enough for me to visit my family in Chicago. Iowa is the place I wanted to raise my kids. And I started Mobile M2M in late 2016. After a long career in doing sales, systems engineering, and marketing in the wireless handheld computer industry, my dad was an engineer as well as an entrepreneur and a successful businessman. And both my brothers are engineers. And I guess I thought that's just what we do and was only only vaguely aware that there was other options out there. But the engineering background has uh, helped me both in the formulation of the technologies used in mobile M2M. And it gives you a good understanding of the building blocks to understand quickly how things work. And that's helped me throughout my career. Awesome. And you guys are located in Cedar Rapids, is that correct? Correct. Awesome. And just give me a a little bit more information, mobile M2M. What do you guys do? What type of clients do you work with? I'd love to learn a little bit more. The business was formed after doing a fair amount of research. And one of the things that has become of interest to me is personal data privacy. And as I searched for solutions. There was a couple things that happened around 2016 that made a big impression on me. One was, if you'll remember at the time, it was uh, leaders in government as well as Silicon Valley putting tape over their cameras and microphones of connected devices and recommending that everybody do the same thing. And it just really struck me because these are really uh, smart people on probably the most secure networks in the world taking this lowbrow Fred Flintstone approach to privacy. That's what sort of started the thought process that maybe the answer to this high-tech problem of, of spying and privacy isn't more technology. And it was about that same time, if you recall, there was a, a big internet disruption in the eastern United States that was brought about by an army of what's called a botnet of hijacked smart home devices in people's homes that consisted of Wi-Fi's uh, routers and DVRs and uh, smart wireless cameras that were hijacked to uh, to generate this disruption. And it really became apparent that those devices are pretty easily susceptible. They've got weak security by design because they're you know, designed by manufacturers who are just anxious to get their product to market and don't take the time to build in things like good security. And they're consumer products, and consumers don't want to deal with the complexities associated with it. And those devices are all still out there. The numbers have only grown, and they're still being used to do harm. And the ironic part is that the people that own them aren't even aware that they're part of the problem because the devices still function as they in, the, in their normal capacity in addition to doing work for the hackers. And I set about a solution to address both those things and created mobile M2M and we developed a product that we call Off Hours. 
Awesome. Well, now you're leaving us hanging. Tell us about off hours. I, I understand the problem thoroughly, but I want to know your solution for it. Well, I built on this theme of simplicity. The biggest problem, the problem with privacy, isn't that the manufacturers are doing something illicit. They're only doing what we gave them permission to do when we accepted their terms and conditions before we were able to use their product. And this agreement that we signed, or the EULA, the End User License Agreement, people don't read them. They're not meant to be read. They're written in a legalese that even if you do read them, the meaning isn't clear. But what you accept when you accept to use that product, and we're conditioned to do that as consumers, to just click the box and move on, is that we allow the manufacturers to observe how we use the products and to share that information with third parties. And to put those words in plain speak, We're giving them permission to spy on us and then to monetize the information that they collect about us. And it seems like there's a dwindling number of spaces that we have an expectation of privacy. You know, as you look around and you read in the news about the number of cameras that are in public spaces, the number of cameras that your employer is bringing into the workplace, the self-surveillance that we put ourselves under when we carry a smartphone with us, the home where you live ought to be sacrosanct. And I started to focus on the issue with smart home devices, with bringing these things into our houses. And the rub comes from, we use these devices maybe a few hours per week, but they're effectively using us for 24 hours a day. So we wanted to come up with a solution to bring some balance back to that equation where our use of the product is sort of balanced by their use of us. We do that by depriving them of access to the network during the times that we're not using them. That's where the name off hours comes from. So I'm effectively turning off the network at home during the hours that we're not using the equipment. That's awesome. Is it a hardware product or a software product? It's both. Okay. There's an appliance and there's basically three main modes of operation where we keep the system off through a geofence mechanism, if you're familiar with that. Yep. It's in conjunction with your mobile app on your phone. But when the home is empty, when the geofence is empty, the system is off. Uh, when you're asleep at night through a schedule timer, the system's off. And when you're home and not using the network, we keep the system off and make it really easy to turn on and off by either pressing the button on the appliance using the mobile phone or using your smart speaker to say Alexa it's off hours and shutting the network down oh my goodness I love that that's such an amazing innovation in happening here within the state of Iowa I think it's awesome that you are kind of taking the lead in that I know that you wrote an article about opting in and what that really means What does it mean to you? And can you expand on that a little bit? What do you think as users and as consumers we should have the opportunity for? You touched on it a little bit, but expand on that if you would. Like I mentioned earlier, it's that's something that we're conditioned to do. Everybody flies through the instructions. This is particularly true of guys, I think, where you just click yes, 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 whatever, because you want to get to the good part of what, whatever the device is or the program is that you're installing. When we do that, and it's an, it's an understanding and it's agreement, I don't take issue with the giving up personal information, because I think that if you talk to, oh, it was a recent interview by the uh, CTO of, of Vizio, if you remember a few years back, they were sued and fined pretty heavily 
because of their over-the-top collection of data from the people that bought Vizio TVs. And they're still in that business. And they're the most open about it, saying that, you know, asking the question, it was, it was a podcast, actually, that I was listening to a few months ago with the CTO of Verizon, and he, of Vizio, rather. And he was talking about asking the interviewer, why do you think these TVs have gotten so inexpensive? And why do you think they last so long? It's because once we get on the wall in your home, the revenue continues to trickle in throughout the life of that TV. That's the deal when you use these. And where the issue comes from is that when you're not using them, like a smart speaker, which you'll use, uh, I mean, I've got smart everything at home, smart garage door, smart thermostat, got a Nest system, wireless cameras. And the thing is, I want ultimate control over when these things are on and when I'm using them. And I want to know when I have periods of privacy, when I'm not. And I like to, I've, I've done a fair amount of work on Facebook and articles like you pointed out, like this one on, on LinkedIn, where I just like to call people's attention. So people keep aware of what they're giving up in relation to their privacy and that the information about them, especially as you get closer and closer to real-time information, that has a lot of value. And you need to recognize that and be cognizant of when there's devices around and, and when, when you're being surveilled. Yeah, and it sounds like you have a definite passion for this topic, um, not only in the education part of it, making sure that people are well-informed, but also the technology itself. Have you always been that way, or is that something that is developed within your career? Technology for technology's sake, has always been mildly interesting to me. I think a lot of new technology consists of solutions looking for problems. I see technology as a means. My interests are more in the application of technology and its impact on human efficiency, quality of life, the environment, uh, even happiness. I love that. You guys obviously are, are in Cedar Rapids and in Iowa. Where do you see Iowa's technological advancements in the future? Where do you think as a state and you know, even reaching further than that, how can we connect and really advance within the technology space? I think Iowa's doing a pretty good job taking away the reasons why technical talent would feel compelled to leave. And they're also doing a good job creating environments that I think attract talent. I've met a lot of developers and entrepreneurs that have, have come to Iowa and stayed because of the Midwest culture and the the low costs relative to established technology centers and the wealth of talent that we have here. And most importantly, I think that businesses are digital and it where you matter, you know, where, where the pin is on the map is, is in terms of your HQ matters less today than it ever has. And it's going to matter even less tomorrow. I, I think you'll see more startups in Iowa and more businesses setting up operations here in smaller communities and especially near uh, universities. I think I think the possibilities are limitless. Yeah, and I really think I was fortunate to start a business here in this state. And I think that the support that people have given me just, you know, with that Midwest kind of mentality of help and just assistance has been so impactful. And I was fairly young when I started my business, but what advice would you give to young people, whether or not they're trying to start something in the technology space or even just advance their career here in the state? Oh, it's interesting. I've worked with a lot of developers and programmers, and I've worked with programmers, you know, domestically in the United States, or remotely located in my building here. Uh, I've worked with firms in India as well as in the uh, Far East, and I kind of group people, coding people into two groups. One, I sort of affectionately call code monkeys. Um, I, I, I guess I, I thought of code monkeys because I think of the organ grinder where you pay the money and right. then when the, when, the, when the music stops, they're done. 
and they move on, uh, versus real developers. And uh, with the former, this is especially true of using developers in other places, is that the best you can hope for is exactly what you ask for. And experience has taught me that exactly what you're asking for is seldom what you really intended because development is a reiterative process. That's where you come across what you thought was obvious isn't obvious to a developer in another country or even another part of the United States and what you get back isn't exactly what you intended. And the biggest thing that separates the code monkeys from the developers is an innate sense of curiosity and the need to understand why and to keep asking why. Why is this better? Why is it needed? And how does it work? And keep digging until you they reach a bedrock understanding of either the, the, the technology that's in play or the requirements that they're being given. And that makes them more valuable. It makes them better at their job and it makes them more valuable within the organizations that they're at because it forces the people that are asking them to do things into tough questions. If you're asking a developer to, to do something for you, you better be able to answer all the whys. If not, maybe you ought to end the meeting early and go do some more homework. And it's almost a disservice to themselves and a, and a waste of people's times if people just take requirements without going through that exercise and just deliver back what they thought they were being asked to do. It's that built-in curiosity that needs to be nurtured and maintained to be successful and thrive in the technology community. What are your thoughts about creativity in the technology space? I know that, you know, in the past, a lot of people that were interested in going into technology or, let's say, coding, people were like, oh, you're good at math and science. You should be a developer. And, oh, you're good at, you know, drawing and art. Maybe not so much. But I just see the need for that creativity and the unique lens crossing over into the technology space so beautifully at times. What's your thought about that creativity within the development process? It's it's always good because it's bridging this gap between the person who's got the requirements and articulating those requirements in the function of the product that you're working on, be it software, hardware, or both. It really starts with, um, gosh, you know, back when I first started at, um, at Naran Corporation in Cedar Rapids, we did this thing that we called writing the route. We, we did route accounting software and we would put systems engineers that would wake up three cracks before the crack of dawn and go to the bakery and get on the truck with the bakery driver as he did his route and uh, just follow him throughout the day. And writing the route became a metaphor for all the different things I've done throughout my career in terms of walking in the shoes of your customer and, and understanding that, you know, your customer isn't just the person in the business meeting across the table that you're negotiating with to, to come up with a solution. It's back in the warehouse for the guy who's driving the forklift truck, putting the things on the shelf and how they go about doing their daily operations. And you have to do that with them to get an intimate understanding of how can you make the technologies that are available best conform to meet the application challenge. What, what problems are they trying to solve and how do we go about doing that? And that's where a lot of room about creativity can come into play because it's so, you know, it's easy to, to look at an application and intellectually understand what needs to happen. But the difference between that and a real successful implementation is that degree of intimacy in understanding the people that are actually going to hold the computers and do the work. Does that make sense? Oh, that's such great insight. I think that you really nailed it. And just, it's so obvious that really to be a good technologist, you just 
as you mentioned, you have to really understand the problem to find the right solution. And um, I think that does open up an entire group of people who maybe never thought about being in the field of development or software engineering or, you know, just a piece of that process because there's plenty of different roles within that for lots of different individuals. Yeah. And I think from a programming standpoint, you need to be proficient, but that doesn't mean you have to be the best coder to be excellent at your job because it's more a function of getting it right and uh, the user interface, the whole experience of the product, than it is writing efficient code. I think you said it well. And I really appreciate your time today. I definitely encourage our audience to check out your solution, Mobile M2M, your business, rather, some of your products. I know I definitely will. Very interesting conversation today, Bernie. And um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Beth. Good to meet you. You too. The TAI Technically Iowa podcast is sponsored by the Iowa Economic Development Authority, or IEDA. Our state has the second lowest cost of doing business in the country. Let IEDA help you get started at iowaeda.com.